Well, it's always uh, good to see all of you here in the room, those of you that are worshiping online, welcome. It's another Sunday that we come together, an opportunity uh, to talk about fear. We're, we've been in this great series. Uh, this is week three about fear. We've got a couple of more weeks. We're going to uh, talk about you know, fear of the future. We're going to talk about fear of death. You know, we've been trying to make sure that we're in tune with a lot of uh, topics that uh, Christians and even non-Christians alike are, are challenged with. And I'm hopeful that uh, these are making some sense for you. So why is it, this has just really been on my mind lately, why is it that 3 o'clock in the morning is usually the hour that you, like, wake up? Does that happen to anybody? You know, it happened to me, like, twice this week. And I'm not talking about, you know, the dog waking you up or something like that. But it's almost like, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning seems that, you know, appointed hour where, where all of a sudden, boom, you wake up and, and something's on your mind. So you might be thinking about, things that you forgot to do. Anybody write themselves little notes at night? Something comes to you, write it down so you don't forget it in the morning, or am I the only one that does that? It's like, Bob, you got a problem. Okay, so, um, but, but three o'clock in the morning, so things happen. So you're, you're thinking about things that you forgot to do or that you need to do, or, or maybe, uh, maybe you're one of those people that you can't turn your brain off, and your brain's just kind of like ruminating, right? It's just kind of going through all of those iterations of things that happen. Um, who all goes through the, the what-if scenarios of life? What if this? What if that? What happens here? What happens there? What happens? What if? What if? What if? You know, these are the kinds of things that just kind of weigh on us. And, and all of our minds are triggered to constantly be thinking. Um, you know, I, I haven't found a program or a thing yet that allows me to just turn off my mind in a sense that my brain's not functioning but I was thinking about this this week because it's almost as like we obsess about things. Has that ever happened to you? you? You obsess about things. It's like things are constantly you know, churning inside of your mind. Your brain's ruminating. You're thinking about, I got to do this, I got to do that. What about this? What about that? What if? What if? What if? You know, many children are afraid of the dark. Um, anybody uh, have children that were afraid of the dark? Maybe as a child you were afraid of the dark. I was afraid of the dark. They didn't have, um, they didn't have um, night lights back when I was a kid. We had to actually burn a candle. And put a candle in your, just kidding. Uh, Pastor Pam told me that earlier, but I just, you know, anyway. I, I tried to convince her that it probably was a long candle for her. But anyway, so, <laughs> I'm going to get killed later. Okay. But, but so, so children fear the dark. And, and what it takes for children sometimes is that it takes an adult. It takes a parent. It takes a mom. It takes a dad. It takes maybe mom and dad or a grandparent or someone who loves the child to, to come up to them and to, to warm up to them and to remind them that, that there aren't any kinds of um, you know, gremlins hiding inside underneath their bed or, or in their closets. And these are the kinds of things that, that, that bring fears to us. And as Christians, um, you know, whereas we have a heavenly father, right? We have a heavenly father whose voice calms us. We have a heavenly father whose words calm us in the scriptures. And so our heavenly father is like an earthly parent who helps move us through these things. Well, we've been talking about fears the last couple of weeks, and, and I've uh, pretty much tried to make it a point that we all have fears and um, that we all have something that we're afraid of. And I've tried to kind of uh, de-emphasize this um, thing that you're not allowed to have fears, you do. And, and so I've been talking a little bit about you know, different kinds of fears, and the kind of things I talked about was ra uh, rational fears. A rational fear is where you're doing something or something is happening and your brain goes into that fight or flight or protective mode. I think I gave you an image of someone standing at the ledge of a, of a cliff or something, and, and you know, um, rational fear says, hey, take a few steps back. 
You don't want to be so close to that. Irrational um, fears, those are, or um, yeah, irrational fears are the, are the fears of the unknown. These are the things that um, just kind of come up. These are the things that we, that we think of. These are the things that we obsess on. We obsess on, am I going to get sick with this new variant that's out? Um, can I pay my bills? Will I, will I be able to do this or that? These irrational fears that, fears that just kind of overwhelm us. And those are the kinds of fears that if we're not careful, um, can, can really put a jam on things that we're doing. Why are irrational fears so prevalent today? Is because you and I, we get information instantaneous. Instantaneously, that information comes. And so uh, uh, irrational fears will come. You know, some of us kind of obsess on like what I call uh, real near-term irrational fears, like will I lose my job or will I, will I have enough money for the end of the month? So these are the things that contribute to that. So today, I, I want to walk us through um, this whole thing about obsessing on these, these worries that we have, these challenges that come. And we find Jesus um, in, in, a, in a garden. In fact, Jesus is, is placed, he's in an olive grove. In fact, John's gospel, I think, is the only one that says it's a garden. The other ones call it a grove. And, and he finds himself in this grove. Uh, likely, he visited this grove many times with the disciples. In fact, Luke says, in 2239 that Jesus was at the garden as, as, as was custom. Jesus was at the grove as was custom. So we know that this was a place that Jesus often visited. And some would speculate, why was this such a special place, this, this grove, this garden, this place called Gethsemane? And we realize that if we were to historically look back, that, that King David uh, found himself in an olive grove similar to this, probably Gethsemane. David found himself there as he was uh, fearfully hiding from his son Absalom, who tried to kill him. And David is overwhelmed, and he's weeping tears of sadness because of this. So Luke and, and Mark and John, they talk to us about this place that Jesus goes. What we do know is that this is a place that Jesus went often, but it's also a place where Jesus went when he felt overwhelmed. That feeling overwhelmed was a part of this. This was a place when he went through his greatest anguish. So let's, uh, let's look at what Mark is telling us this morning about this. So he says, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. So Jesus has his disciples. They go with him. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. So he's telling the disciples to just stay in one location. And he is going to leave that location and go somewhere else. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Now, Peter, James, and John are, are like Jesus' besties, okay? Um, these are the guys that Jesus felt like he could really be real with. That um, they were the ones that, that Jesus took to those places where, where he revealed himself in a powerful way. The transfiguration. The scriptures talk about how Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John upon a mountain, and there he became brilliantly white, and there was Moses, and there was Elijah, and they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophecy, Moses and Elijah, and that was there that Peter makes this uh, discourse that, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and these things begin to come into fruition. So Peter, he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he became, look at this, deeply troubled and distressed. I want you to underline those words, deeply troubled and distressed. So we see that there's something happening with Jesus here. He's alone, he's in a garden, he's, he's, he's away from all the, the troubles of what ministry is bringing, and he finds himself deeply troubled and distressed, and he says to them, my soul is, listen to this, crushed. 
Underline that word. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And so we know that there's something that's happening inside of Jesus. There's this tumultuous battle that's going on. There's this feeling of being overwhelmed with, with fear and anguish and perplexing and all of the kinds of things that come. So he went a little further and he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Do you observe the posture of prayer of Jesus? Now, most, most it was custom that, that when you prayed to God, you would pray standing, that, that, your, that your arms and your hands would be to the heavens and that you would be looking up and that you would be making contact with the heavenly Father. And here we read that, that Jesus is not in this posture of prayer, is he? That he actually has fallen to the ground. He is prostrate. Prostrate would mean that, that he's physically laying on the ground. His face is in the dirt. His arms are out to his sides. And he is weeping and lamenting and he's crying. And he's calling out to God in, this, in the midst of all of this. All three Gospels <clears throat> give these references to this account of what's happening in the life of Jesus. But what we see here is something really interesting. I mean, I believe it's at those moments that, that the gospel writers are telling us that Jesus is overwhelmed. Jesus is afraid. Jesus realizes the anxiety of what is to come next. But why did he pick Peter, James, and John? Why, why did he take them? You know, they were his best friends, as I said earlier. But, but here's the point. So, so when, when you are challenged, when you are weeping, when you are... Uh, crying out to God when your soul is feeling crushed and you feel distressed, doesn't it make sense to surround yourself with the people that you are closest with? That these are people that, that you can actually um, feel the strength that comes from that. I mean, think about it for a second. So, so Jesus is at this place and he has his closest friends with him. You see, so often... We, we think about Jesus about, this, about being this pillar of strength, and, and maybe he was being that pillar of strength for the other disciples, and, and maybe when he said to Peter, James, and John, come follow me, let's go over here, maybe it was there he revealed his true feelings. And that's important for us to remember because we have friends like that too. Some of us in the room, we, we know what it's like to have to put on a face to be strong, right? Um, I remember when... A family member died, and another family member said to me, you have to be strong. You can't show any emotion. You have to be strong, and you have to put on the right face, and, and, and you can't cry. You can't weep. Uh, you can't show anything that's going on in your mind with that. I mean, like, really? And that's, sometimes that's what we are confronted with. So Jesus began to share what he was feeling. It says here, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. The word Abba is a, is a Greek word uh, that really translates to the intimacy that we see between father and son. Jesus cries out, Abba, Father. Abba translates in its, in its uh, slightest or its lowest um, Greek translation, it means daddy, like daddy God. And so we can see that in this that, that Jesus is, is appealing in a very childlike way. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Do you see the struggle? Do you hear it? 
Are you invited into this story enough to see that, that Jesus understands that, that suffering is a possibility, but, but, but he's also at this point where, where he doesn't want suffering at all. He doesn't, he doesn't want to necessarily go to the cross. He doesn't necessarily want to have to die, but yet he finds himself in this place. People will read this dialogue between the son and the father, and some people get really freaked out by this. Some people get freaked out and they, and they kind of wonder, well, what is Jesus doing? Other people actually take some solace in this. Other people feel the compassion. Other people say, listen, I can relate to where he's at. That I've had some challenges. I've had some struggles in my own life. And I've been in those places. And, and I know what it's like to be able to you know, cry out in my anguish, cry out in my anxiety, to cry out with my fears. But others find this troubling, especially because at this point, Jesus is asking the Father to not have to have him do what he was called to do. Jesus is almost trying to uh, negotiate with God at the point where, where he's saying, I really don't want to do this. In fact, I don't want to do this. And, and, and is there any way that you can take this away from me? Some people will look at that and say, well, he had no courage. He wasn't wanting to go to the cross. You know, I recall several years ago how some of my friends, when I uh, preached on this text in a different context during the Easter season. And, and they kind of got upset at me. And they said, you know, how dare you say that you wondered about Jesus' fear at that moment? He was God. He didn't have any fears. Well, but I think the gospel writers are letting us know that the human side, remember, divine and yet human? And we're seeing this in Jesus. It's obvious Jesus was in trouble. How do we know? Listen to what Luke says. Luke puts it this way, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling, falling to the ground. You know, I, I look at this. I look at this, and, and there's something visibly missing. Have you caught it yet? God the Father does not speak. Did you catch that? It's Jesus, the Son, who's speaking. Jesus is calling out. There is no reassuring words coming from heaven. We don't hear the voice of the Father proclaiming once again, this is my Son to whom I am most pleased. Listen to him. Jesus hears the silence of God. Last week I shared with you that great story of Elijah and, and how when Elijah was, was searching and seeking for the voice of God and, and God's word said it's not going to come in a fire, it's not going to come in a mountain or an earthquake, it's not going to come in the rush of waters, but it would come into the still small voice of what? A whisper. But nowhere in here in this story do we find that. The scripture finds Jesus flat on, himself, flat on his face crying out in anguish the mental stress that he must have been under at that very moment, knowing that his destiny to the cross was, was, was a very great destiny, but one that would cost him so much. He feels the fear. He knows the anguish. And yet, he says in his prayer, I don't want this. And if there's a way that you can, like, change this circumstance, but you know what? He covers his face probably, you know. But, but you know what? It's not what I want. It's what you want. I'll do what you want. And this story is powerful. 
You see, Jesus knew what crucifixion was. He had seen people be crucified. He knew what death on a cross meant. He knew what it represented. He knew the shameful ways. He knew the, 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 the power and the pain that came from all of these things. Perhaps the story of Abraham and Isaac came into his mind. Perhaps he was sitting there thinking about, well, well I recall the story of, of Father Abraham, the father of many nations. Abraham. And God says to Abraham, take your one and only son, Isaac, and take him and put him on an altar, and there will become a sacrifice. And Abraham builds that. And, and just before Abraham's blade commits to his son's flesh, God provides a ram in the thicket, and Abraham unties Isaac and takes him off the altar. No sacrifice needed that day. Something else came to be. Maybe Jesus was thinking about that. Uh, Luke's description holds on to a couple of things about the character of Jesus through this. And the one thing that Luke tells us is, is that feeling overwhelmed in fear, Jesus takes both his pain and his need to God in prayer. And that says something. Too often, I think, what happens is, is that we become overwhelmed by our situations our circumstances bring fear to our lives. We get to a point where we're just not sure and, or that we're so focused on what's going on that we forget to pray. We forget to tap into. We forget to connect relationally with our Heavenly Father in those moments. And when we do, sometimes our prayers have become so rote. I mean, work with me for a second here. Our prayers become rote. And we, we just say things like, God, you know, bless me. Or God, uh, be with me. Or be with my family. Or watch over. And we use those kind of benign words. And I'm not saying that, 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 that that's nasty that you do that or wrong that you do that. What I'm just saying is, do we understand the power of prayer? We are connecting with the one who created us who knows the number of the hairs on our head, who knew and called us by name before we were ever in our mother's wombs, the Almighty. Jesus' prayer was not a, a matter of checking in, but it was, it was filled with honesty and emotion and real pain. It wasn't kind of a, hey, God, you still up there? Can I still depend on you? Are you listening? Are you up there? No, he, he cried out to the Father. He cried out to him in his prayer. You see, this isn't the direction that Jesus really wants to go. He's full of fear. He's perplexed. The cross is something that he doesn't want to do. But yet he understands God's perfect will must be done. Jesus understands that the Father will sacrifice the Son for the sins of all of humanity and that Jesus' part in that was instrumental for God's plan to be fulfilled. And it is with that understanding that Jesus looks beyond himself. But Luke also points out that in the midst of this prayer, that Jesus' prayer isn't sugar-coated. He tells God exactly the way that it is. I mean, think about it. When have you actually prayed that prayer? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, not my will. Lord, yours be done. Yours be done. Each of us knows, I think, probably. We know that those points in our life when maybe God is saying something to us. 
Maybe God is like connecting with us. God is speaking to us. And God is calling us into something that isn't comfortable. God is asking us. God is nudging us. God is pushing us into a direction that we just don't want to take. But yet God is saying, but this is my plan. This is the kingdom's purpose. This is my desire for you. Have you ever been pushed by God in a direction that felt uncomfortable for you? I can think of a couple of examples. One was a, a friend of mine who is a, was a regional manager of a, of a national bank and, and uh, you know, had, a, had a lot of responsibility, had a great income, and, and God called him to leave, leave his vocation of being a, a district banking or regional uh, vice president, to leave that and to become a full-time foster care father. And he and his wife now have fostered care dozens of children giving them hope in a family. Another friend left his career as a, as a very um, a wealthy um, contractor, a very wealthy um, consultant, and he did that to help start a new church. And I know in both of those instances, because I know these two men well, that they both came to that point saying, God, I don't really want to do this, but it's not my will, but yours be done. And they followed the model of Jesus' prayer. You see, here we are in week three, and, and here's, here's kind of the crux of this. What is the fear that you're holding on to? What is the thing that maybe God is inviting you or asking you or even telling you to do that it's going to require everything about you to surrender who you are today to accomplish what God is asking you to do tomorrow? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, Wesley Wesley knew that it was important in this thing called discipleship. Discipleship means a disciple is someone who trains under the master. So we are disciples of Jesus. We train under Jesus, that Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord, and, and therefore Jesus teaches us how to be in relationship with God. And Wesley said it is so important to be reminded how to do this, that this is integral. It was part of the method of what people needed to be not only holy, but also to be in a relationship with God. And Wesley came up with what was called a covenantal prayer. We've prayed this prayer before. This prayer, this prayer has come in, in seasons, maybe probably the first of the year where, where we want to start the year off right and we use portions of this prayer. But it's a reminder, it's a surrender. And, and, and sometimes as Christians, we need to be reminded that we have to surrender. You know, we want to be like all out there. We want to be large and in charge. We want to, you know, tell the world that we believe this, we believe that. But when are we telling them that as part of a Christian, we must surrender? Surrender does not have a good connotation in the world, especially right now. What does it mean to surrender? It means to give up. And in this context, it means to give up self. To be a disciple of Jesus, we must surrender ourself. We must surrender our will. We must surrender our desire and our whatever it is that is who we are. And we must surrender it to God. And only until we can surrender self to God, only until then, can we truly find and experience what it means to be in God. So Wesley 
put together some words, and I kind of have grouped them together for us today. And I want to invite you, as I did a couple of weeks ago, I think in week one, where we had a congregational response. Those of you that are home, those of you here in our worship center, uh, I invite you to stand up as you're able. And we're going to, I'm going to lead us through this prayer together. And I want you to think about, I don't want you to think about it. Here I am just reading some words that PB threw up on the screen. I want you to think about these words. I want you to live these words. My hope is that, that Christ will experience himself in you with these words. Let's pray together. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all to your pleasure and disposal. Let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I will give up myself to your will in all things. You know, I, I believe if you prayed this prayer, that you were on your way into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because you have now released yourself. You have put yourself in Gethsemane with the Lord. Because instead of your will and your way, you're surrendering it to Christ. When Jesus surrendered himself that night in Gethsemane, it led to an arrest, it led to a false trial, it led to uh, scourging, it led to a crucifixion, it led to his death. And his death frees you and me from sin forevermore. 